Um, this is a very important week for me uh, because it, it, it's a heavy week because it combines two um, very, very important issues that are near and dear to me. Um, and, and, and it's even a heavier week for me because these two issues that it combines, it, it for the longest, as long as I've been, you know, a, a, a Christian and certainly as long as I've been uh, walking in more conservative-leaning Christianity, uh, conservative-leaning evangelicalism, um, or just evangelicalism in general, there has been um, a, a, a fight almost between trying to determine which of these issues carry priority. And we've done the unfortunate thing of trying to divide the issues instead of just simply caring about both. On night in night rather in 1983, uh, President Ronald Reagan uh, signed into law the observance of the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. holiday or the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. birthday. And that birthday was to be observed every third Monday in January. One year later, President Reagan signed a proclamation observing the sanctity of life day. And that day was to be observed every third Sunday in January. And so one year apart, you had Dr. Martin Luther King's birthday being observed and the sanctity of life day being observed, and they were observed one day apart. And so they have always in our country, call it God's providence, been connected together in terms of how the time that we think about them and how we think about them. And when I'm talking about, and I'm talking about, when I say them, I'm talking about civil rights and, and, and abortion and, and defense of life in the womb. And so for whatever reason, like I said, we've made it more controversial than we've had to. And we try to separate them and say, well, this is more important than that is more important when really they're both equally important. They are both worth our attention. They're both worth our focus. But it's providential because at the heart of both of these days is the ideal of personhood. The question of what makes a person human, what makes, what makes a person valuable. Randy Alcorn is a, a prominent uh, author and teacher of scripture, and, and he writes about personhood. Um, he's written about personhood a good bit, and, and in one of his works, he, he quotes, he, he writes as follows, and I'm quoting him. He says, is the fact that your life was not taken from you as an unborn meaningful to you now? If a mother wants her baby, his life is meaningful. Which is, a, which is why she mourns if there's a miscarriage. But if a mother doesn't want her baby, then his life is not meaningful to her. But is the worth of a human being dependent upon whether others think his life is meaningful? Does the unborn transform from person to non-person with each of his mother's changes of mind? And doesn't every human being regard the life he had in the womb as meaningful? Since, it had, been ter- since had it been terminated, he or she would not now be alive. He goes on and he says, black people, women, Indians, Jews, and many others have been declared non-persons or persons whose lives are not meaningful, but for whose benefit? That of the people in power who have declared for their own economic, political, or personal advantage who is meaningful and who isn't. 
It was white people deciding that blacks were less human. It was males deciding women had fewer rights. And now it's big people deciding little people don't have rights. Personhood is not something to be bestowed on living human beings, large or small, by an intellectual elite group with vested interests in ridding society of undesirables. Personhood has an inherent value, a value that comes from being a member of the human race. For those who believe the Bible, this is linked to being created in the image of God. But even those who are not Christians can hold to this position, though it is increasingly difficult to do so, that human life is valuable even when it's small or even when it's less useful to others. This matter of personhood is not only debated as it relates to minority citizens and as it relates to the unborn, but it even extends to those who are poor. It extends to those who are physically and mentally disabled. It extends to those who are elderly. It it extends to those who are immigrants. It extends to those who are refugees. We are always warring within ourselves and as a nation to determine how much value do we ascribe to these different people groups. However, the reason the questions remain is not because any of these people are less valuable than us. It's because they require something from us in order to thrive fully in our world. And we are in the mood of being inconvenienced. We are in the mood of being inconvenienced by their lack of power, by their lack of resources, by their lack of strength, by their lack of wealth, by their lack of whatever. We aren't in the mood of being inconvenienced by their, by their cries for help, which is why the issue of value comes up. It's not because they're less valuable. It's because we ourselves don't want to be inconvenienced by them. In August 1963, Dr. King sat in a Birmingham jail. And I've read that letter to you before. But he sat in a Birmingham jail he took out apparently a sheet of paper and a pen to begin to jot his thoughts in response to a local group of white ministers, eight in all, who had taken time to draft a newspaper editorial statement addressing the the recent unrest in the city of Birmingham as a result of the nonviolent demonstrations and protests. And the eight ministers, they made a strategic and calculated decision to not rock the boat of those that were disrupting those demonstrations, but instead to spend more of their time and more of their energy scolding the protesters. And it was to that passivity and that that. that inability to rock the boat that they were demonstrating that Dr. King wrote. And he wrote this, just a couple of words from his letter. He said, in the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon the Negro, I have watched white churchmen stand on the sideline and mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. I have heard many ministers say those are social issues with with which the gospel has no real concern. He goes on to say, I felt that the white ministers, priests, and rabbis of the South would be among our strongest allies. Instead, some have been outright opponents 
Refusing to understand the freedom movement and misrepresenting its leaders, all too many others have been more cautious than courageous and have remained silent behind the security of stained glass windows. See, this passivity was not only prevalent back then, but it's prevalent now. And it's not, it's not just simply prevalent in white ministers, but it's just prevalent in church folk in general. Whether it's towards the unborn, whether it's towards the poor, whether it's towards reconciliation, whether it's towards homelessness, whether it's towards the disabled, we as Christians in America are all too comfortable, all too often overlooking the issues that should move us towards action. Now, I'm not saying that you can address every issue because you can't. Only God can. But neither am I willing to concede that we are addressing everything as we should. We, like those eight ministers in Birmingham, don't like the inconvenience caused by such matters. So we have become very adept in speaking in ways to ease our conscience. We say things like, I should help or I would help, but I'm not sure if it's going to do any good. So I'm just not going to help at all. We say things like, I got enough problems of my own. I don't have, can't help because I got things I'm doing, things I'm working on. We say, well, we we are actually saved by grace and not by works. And so, we shouldn't do any works because we're not saved by them. What you're proposing, preacher, is social gospel. And I'm not a social gospel person. We have become very adept in our fight for convenience and in our striving for passivity. But is it what God has called us to is the question. And the answer is simply no. When you look at the Bible, the answer is no. The Lord has called us to action. Call it whatever you want to call it. But the Lord has called us to action. Lord has ultimately called us to do justice. In fact, one of the clearest passages of Scripture is found in Micah chapter 6, verse 6 through 7. And it says this. uh, I'm sorry, verses 6 through 8. And it begins in verse 6 and 7. It says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my sin, my transgression? Shall I give the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? In other words, shall I give my very life for this? Micah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is building out a conversation between God and his people. And verse 6 and 7 is the people talking to God and saying, God, what do you want from us? What do you require from us? I have to give you all my stuff, rams, rivers of oil. Do I have to give you, do I have to give you my my children? Do I have to give you my life? Do I have to die and sacrifice my life in order to please you? Micah responds on God's behalf in verse 8 of chapter 6. Micah chapter 6 verse 8, it says this. He has told you, O man, what is good. 
And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice? Some translations say to act justly and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. What does God require? All your possessions, all your firstborn or all your, or your very life and sacrifice? No, that's not, that's not what he says. He says, I require that my people walk humbly with me. I require that my people love kindness and love mercy. I require that my people do justice and act justly towards all. Act justly simply means to seek the good of the people among you, especially the weaker among you. Exodus chapter 23, Leviticus chapter 25, and Deuteronomy chapter 25 all lay out ways in which the ancient, in the ancient Israel was intended to do justice. It lays out ways in which we should be honest in our dealings, impartial in our judgments, supporting the weaker among us, restoring order, doing justice. But that is not the only place it shows us over and over again in the Old and the New Testament, the call to do justice. Sometimes it's translated as righteousness. Sadakah. But righteousness is also, that same word is translated in the Old Testament as justice. And then when you get to the New Testament, when you get to the Greek, because the Old Testament is, is, is originally in Hebrew and the New Testament is originally in Greek, when you get to the Greek, then the, the word is the kaiosune. But that word that's translated righteousness that you see over and over and over again in the New Testament, and that word that you, 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 uh, that's translated or that's, or, or that's originally sedekah that you hear over and over and over again in the Old Testament as righteousness, both have connections to justice. It makes sense, right? Righteousness means doing right. Justice, doing right. It's not that different of a term, but we fear it so much. And matter of fact, in Plato's work, in Plato's Republic, an ancient work, he mentions four virtues, wisdom, courage, moderation, and justice. And Plato writes in the Greek, and how do you think he translates, the, or how do you think he renders the word justice in the Greek? Dikaio sune, the same word that you hear over and over and over again in the New Testament as righteousness. Justice and righteousness very much connected to one another. So when we see righteousness, we should consider whether there are justice implications involved in the practice and outworking of that righteousness. And how much do you see righteousness in the New Testament and the Old Testament? This should not be surprising to us. Our God is a God of justice, and the very act of the cross is taking a group of unjust people and declaring them justified through the merciful acts and sacrifice of a just Savior. We see mercy and we see justice in the very fabric of the gospel. And as a people who have been saved by this just Savior and made ambassadors of this just Savior and created in the image and the likeness of this just Savior, should we be at all surprised that the Lord calls us to do justice and act justly? 
In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 18 and 19, it says, He executes justice for the fatherless. He executes justice for the widow. He executes justice for the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Now, notice what just happened there. He declares who he is. He is the one who executes justice for the widow, for the fatherless, for the sojourner, the the stranger, the immigrant. He executes justice on their behalf. So what does he then say we should do? Love the sojourner. Love the stranger. What does that mean? That means because I am like this and because you are my people, you should be like this. Be who I am. Are you tracking with that? Are you tracking with that? Because what's so interesting about, the, about these commandments is that we somehow or another separate ourselves from God in these moments. We say, well, God does that. I mean, I love, I love God, but I don't have to do that. But he said, he said no, because, because you are mine and this is my nature, you do what I do. And if I love the widow, if I love the fatherless, if I love the stranger and the sojourner, then you love the widow, you love the fatherless, you love the stranger and the sojourner. Does that make sense? Acting justly is an outpouring of who we are as Christians and reflects back to our union with God and our relationship with Christ. And this is the heart of Isaiah chapter 58 which is why I wanted to go there this morning, but which is why I'm spending so much time talking about so many other scriptures because I'm, kind of, I'm trying to set this stage for you so that you understand we aren't just picking this out of nowhere. It's all throughout scripture. Isaiah chapter 58, verse 1, you, you see the absence of justice. It says, cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins, yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. And oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. It's such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself. There's a pursuit of godliness in this passage without righteousness or without a pursuit of justice. They seek me daily. He's talking about the people. They delight to know my ways. He's talking about the people. They look for me to act righteous. They look to me and they say, well, God, we want you to do the right thing. In other words, when your people need rescuing, come and rescue us. When your people need delivering, come and deliver us. They look to draw near to God in certain ways. And then they ask these questions. 
as they are looking to draw near, as they are looking to seek him, as they are looking to know him, as they are looking to him to act righteously, they ask the following questions. Why don't you see our fasting? Why don't you take notice of our humbling? Well, that's a great question, right? They're seeking him according to the scriptures. They delight to know his ways. They look to him to act righteously. That is a great question. Why isn't he answering them? But take notice of how God responds in Isaiah 58. In Isaiah 58 in verse 4, he says, or verse 3, he says, rather, when you fasted, you still sought your own pleasure while you oppressed workers that belong to you, meaning that, yes, you sought me, yes, you, you were you were fasting, and yes, you were looking for me to act righteously, and yet, and yes, you were studying to know who I was, and yet you were oppressing the people that worked for you. Perhaps they overlooked them. Perhaps they didn't pay them a suitable wage for the work that they performed. But nevertheless, says, nevertheless God is saying, that's why I didn't answer. God says through Isaiah in verse 2 that these people seek me like they are a nation that is actually doing righteousness. He says they're trying to learn about me, they're studying about me, but they're not doing righteousness. So one issue that rises to the surface in the midst of this study is that we can pursue knowledge of God without actually practicing the righteousness of God. This is an extremely important point for us to get this morning. That we can pursue knowledge of God without actually pursuing the righteousness of God. Because we live in this type of culture. A culture rich on orthodoxy. That means sound doctrine, right doctrine. But oftentimes very poor on orthopraxy. Right practice, sound practice. In other words, we love to think about God. But have great trouble acting for God. We love to just think about Him. We love the Bible studies. We love the sermons. We love the blogs. We love the download. Oh, I mean, we got, we got so much access to stuff about God. We got books and books and books and books about God, and we'll read and read and read. And we'll listen to a sermon, and then we'll watch a sermon, and then we'll go to a Bible study. And then we'll teach a Bible study. And then we'll read another book and another book and another book. And then when somebody says, hey, man, I was thinking about going and serving this particular effort or serving this particular group or going to talk to these people about, you know, helping these, helping these folks out that need some help. Hey, man, you got time? It's like, nah, I ain't got time. But we're thinking, we got time to think about God. We make time to think about God. But how much time are we making to act 
as the hands and feet of Jesus. We live in the type of culture that is rich in orthodoxy and poor in orthopraxy. We live in the type of culture in which we sit in our recliners, in our homes, and we perceive that we are near God just because we are always thinking about God. All the while ignoring the orthopraxy of doing righteousness and being liberal with mercy, sharing mercy towards others, towards the weak among us. One commentary commentary puts it this way. He says, the prophet exposes the hypocrisy of a people riding a machine of religion while living corrupt lives that crushed the poor and the needy. Christians today face the same charge, outward observance of church attendance and Bible studies with little genuine sacrifice for the poor and for the needy. You see, the Lord challenges this nation on this front in several ways in the Old Testament. In fact, even when you think about Sodom, when you think about Sodom, most people think about the sin of Sodom being sexual immorality. That's what most people look to. They remember the story in Genesis. They remember the gentleman who was about to sexually assault or who thought they were trying to, going to sexually assault the messenger God had sent. And that's the only thought that we take away from Sodom is that, oh, okay, that's why God destroyed them, because they were sexually immoral. But Ezekiel, the prophet, has a different insight on that. Ezekiel, the prophet, writes in chapter 16 of his his work, verse 48 through 50, he says, As I live, declares the Lord God, your your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride. Excess of food and prosperous ease, but they did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty and an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Do you hear that, saints? That you... You, you might even be able to surmise that he's talking about sexual immorality at the very end. That might be what God is speaking to. But he makes in very clear terms what actually was the sin of Sodom. The sin of Sodom was they were full and comfortable and at ease and saw no need whatsoever to help the people that weren't. That was the sin of Sodom. And that is what led to their destruction. The God calls us, saints. This God calls us not only to not only to walk with Him in our thinking orthodoxy, but He calls us to walk with Him in our doing and our acting orthopraxy. And if you think this is just an Old Testament idea. Right? Because, I mean, of course, we say, well, in the New Testament, Jesus comes. Jesus comes. He frees us from the challenge of performance. He frees us from the burden of performing. 
And we say, okay, well, you know, I mean, he, because he does that, then, I mean, you know, sacrifice is optional. Sacrificing for the weaker vessels among us, that's optional. I can do it if I want to, but I don't have to because Jesus paid it all. Look no further than his half-brother James, his natural half-brother. He says in his book, James chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, he says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans, to visit the widows in their affliction, and to keep one unstained from the world. James's command to us brings us to another very troubling quality of Christianity. We associate orthopraxy only in terms of what we avoid versus what we advance. We think that practicing Christianity is all about what we're not doing. James brings us to a troubling reality about that. We already know that in conservative circles that we carry a bend towards orthodoxy over orthopraxy. But even when we start thinking about orthopraxy, what we do, right doing, most of the time we're thinking about what we're not doing. Not drinking, not smoking, not, you know, not having, you know, sexually immoral affairs and or not lying or not this or not that or not going to this place and not going to that place or not watching this movie or not watching that movie. We're thinking about the things that we're not doing in terms of whether or not we are walking in righteousness. And James messes with that. Hear James's words one more time. He says pure religion, in other words, true religion, the walk with God rightly. He says it's this, visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Meaning that orthopraxy is both what you avoid, keeping oneself unstained, but it's also what you're advancing. What are you doing on behalf of God? That's part of your walk with God. Not just to avoid things, but to actually act. Here's the reality, saints. We don't win anybody to the, to, to the gospel based on what you're not doing. People are looking at, looking at you, okay, you don't drink. All right, okay, cool. All right, you don't drink that much, you don't get drunk. Okay. Oh, you don't sleep around? Okay. I guess, I mean, if it works for you, right? But what opens the eyes of those around you is not what you're not doing. It's what you are doing. It's what they see in you. It's, what, it's, 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 when you are, it's when you are loving in such a way that you are winning them. And so, again, it's not just about avoidance, even though avoidance is critical and important and essential, but it is not the only thing. It's about advancement. It's what you're avoiding, but it's also what you're advancing on behalf of God. When you look back at Isaiah 58 in the latter part, the last part that we'll talk about this morning, there's this, there's this really, really the answer to the why. why. Why do we act justly? Why do we do righteousness, do justice? It begins in verse 6. It says, is not this the fast that I choose? 
So remember, the fast in verse 4, 1 through 5, the people are saying, hey, Lord, we're fasting. We're seeking after your knowledge. You don't, seem to, you don't seem to be visiting us. You don't seem to be with us. You don't seem to be present. Why is that? He says, well, let me share, let me share with you the fast that I expect from you. He says, verse 6, Isn't this, is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him and to not hide yourself from your own flesh. Verse 8 says, then shall your light break forth like dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and speaking of wickedness, if you pour yourself out of the hungry, out for the hungry, pour yourself out for the hungry, and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom be as the noonday. He says, the fast that you were doing before is not the fast I'm looking for. Where you fill up on knowledge, you sacrifice, you avoid food, but yet you got got workers that you aren't even paying a fair wage. That's not the sacrifice I'm looking for. That's not the fast I'm looking for. The fast I'm looking for is to pay those people that you owe the right wage. The fast that I'm looking for is to tip your server. Are you tracking? To actually tip your server as you ought. To actually do justice. To actually do righteousness. To actually cherish and love and share mercy. The fast I'm looking for is that when you see that mother or that, or that father that is in your neighborhood that is in need of support and you know that they're in need of support and you have a bounty at your home that you're able to offer, to offer from that bounty, that's the fast I'm looking for. And he says, when you perform that fast, light breaks through. He says, when you are living not just in orthodoxy, but you're actually living in orthopraxy, and your orthopraxy is not just simply what you're avoiding, but your orthopraxy is what you're advancing, light breaks through. People see the light of Christ. It's at the very heart of our Church mission, let your light so shine that men may see your good works, men may see you doing righteousness, acting justly, and glorify your Father. That's what it means for the light to shine. The light breaks through. And so why do we do justice? We do justice for the gospel. Justice isn't the gospel, but we do it for the gospel. We do it so that we can shine the light of Christ, so that we can show forth Jesus in our world. It serves as a witness to the world when we are 
looking to serve the weaker among us. Paul, in Galatians chapter 2, he talks about this discussion that he has with the brothers back in Jerusalem. And they come to an agreement as to what is, it, what is it that Paul should take back to the Gentiles. Paul is a minister to the Gentiles. They are in Jerusalem ministering to the Jews and sharing the gospel with the Jews. They begin to have this discussion about Paul and whether or not what Paul is delivering is actually what he needs to deliver on behalf of Christ. And they all come to terms and say, okay, Paul, you're doing great. And Paul testifies in Galatians about what they told him he should go back with when he goes back to the Gentiles. He says in verse 7, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Listen, verse 10, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. What happens there? What happens there? Paul says, Paul says, they told me to go and preach the gospel, but to act justly. Don't forget to act justly. Why? Because acting justly affirms the gospel that I'm preaching. If I go and I just preach the gospel without any desire to help the weaker, then I'm undermining the gospel that I'm preaching. You say, how so? which is my last point. Why justice? For the gospel. But why justice? Because of the gospel. Jesus in Luke chapter 4, verse 16, shows up in Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was the custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He stood up to read. In verse 17, he says, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. All of that is justice language embedded in a spiritual reality. Jesus says that he came to bring good news to the poor. He came to bring liberty to the captives. He came to bring sight to the blind. He came to set at liberty those who were oppressed. And he does that. He does that. When he goes to the cross and he dies pays the penalty of our sin on his own shoulders or, or lays the penalty of our sin on his own shoulders, rise from the grave, demonstrating all power, demonstrating victory over death. The Bible says that he who was once rich became poor in order that we might be rich through Christ. He did that. He made us rich. Poor people were made rich. The Bible says that he delivered the captives. He set the captives free. He did that. He came and he set the prisoners free. How did he do that? By dying. The Bible says he delivered the oppressed. How did he deliver the oppressed? By dying. And so he does all of these things that are, that are, that are buried in justice language. He does all of these things when he dies. 
And so it's because he died that we act justly. Why do we seek to help the poor? Because we who were once poor have been made rich. Why do we seek to help the oppressed? Because those, we who were once oppressed, who were once oppressed, have been delivered. We are responding to the gospel. We're responding to what Jesus has done through his sacrifice on our behalf. And so let me give you an application, one or two. Make room. Make room in your life to do justice. Make room in your life to act justly. Make room in your life to do righteousness. In order to, in, in order to, in order to live in such a way where you can do righteousness, you have to make room in your life in order to do righteousness. Make room in your wallet. Make room in your calendar. Make room at your table to do righteousness. Don't wait for others to do righteousness. Are you tracking? Don't sit on the sidelines and say, well, when, whenever somebody comes up with something, then I'll jump in. No. You have opportunities all around you. There are people, there are people all around you that are in need that you can not only, not only can you serve them and, aiding them and aid them by meeting that need, but you can point them to the hope of the gospel while you do so. Opportunities abound. Don't wait for others. Jump in where you see opportunities. Invite people into your life. Invite people into your space. Train, mentor, shepherd, or disciple young men and young women in your life that you know need need training and mentoring. Look for ways that you can be who God has called you to be. Why? Why? for the gospel, but also because of the gospel. In other words, so that Christ might be made known through through your good works, but also because he has been made known to you through his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and intercession. Brian Stevenson is a law, a lawyer who practices... um, or who has um, for, for years now um, helped brothers, sisters who were wrongfully convicted. There's a movie that, that is actually based on his life called Just Mercy that, it, that, was, re, that was recently released. Um, and, and Brian Stevenson is a Christian, very, you know, very outspoken, in, you know, in-your-face Christian. And they talked to him about his work and his Christianity, and, and this, is, this is what he said about it. He said, my faith influences and shapes everything I do. I remember growing up, and the preacher would read from the prophet Micah, what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That has framed the orientation that I have for work and in the kind of life I want to live. I have advocated on behalf of people who have been condemned because I believe that each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done and that belief is rooted in my and that belief is rooted in my conviction in the gospels. I don't believe anyone's beyond hope, beyond redemption. 
I believe everyone's life has purpose and meaning and value. That's why I'm committed to defending basic human rights for everyone. You can agree with him or not agree with him. But can't we all agree that we want our lives and our actions and our practice to be rooted in the Gospels? Don't you want your testimony to be that God's word has framed the orientation for the work that I do and the kind of life I want to live? That's the testimony we all want, folks. So by God's grace and by the power of his spirit, let us pursue it in whatever way that he ushers you or whatever way that he leads you to do so.